This morning, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. As you know, we have been kind of marching through the life of Jesus, in particular His early life. We've looked at several stories uh, that reveal to us who God is. As you know, we're in the season of Epiphany and represented by green, uh, which represents new life. Um, as we're looking toward, so forward to spring, <laughs> in particular out of this cold, at least I am, I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I'm looking forward to spring. Things get green and things become alive because the light is going to come into our world at that moment and, and, and warm up things. And so too has Jesus. That's what Epiphany is about. It's moving from darkness to light. A cold winter. Uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's pictured as always winter but never Christmas. Remember that? That's, that's C.S. Lewis's way of saying exactly what the Bible is talking about. When Jesus comes into our world, it's been a long, dark, cold winter, but now the light has come. Things are starting to thaw out. New life is springing forward. And so we're looking at the early events of Jesus' life. We've looked at Him uh, where He is worshipped at about two years old by the Magi. We've seen Him flee to Egypt and that flight to Egypt. We've seen Him being dedicated at the temple at 40 days old. Uh, And now we come to a very interesting story about Jesus' life and that is His temptation. Uh, We have tried to really show you here in Matthew in particular, we've tried to stay in Matthew as much as possible um, because Matthew's trying to show that this is the King of Jews, but He's a real human. And what you'll notice about Jesus is, yes, He's God, and yet He's in the flesh, and so He's really human. He's really a two-year-old toddler. He's really a baby that needs His mother and needs to be protected by His father, Joseph, which is why they flee to Egypt. Um, he is human, and therefore starts for us baptism, which is a part of Epiphany as well. And now, as soon as the baptism is over, you know, the heavens are opened, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, you have all three persons of the Holy Trinity right here at the baptism, a very special moment, and then notice these words in chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot 
against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let us pray. Jesus, we again thank You for Your most holy Word. Holy Spirit, would You apply Your Word to our hearts this morning and help us to walk from this place living in You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All three of the synoptic Gospels, remember the ones that are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John takes a very different track than the other three if you've ever read the four. All three of them have this story of the temptation. Now, you don't always get that. A lot of times, Matthew will mention something. Uh, Mark is shared, about 80% of it, almost 90% is shared in Matthew and Luke in Mark. So there's only 10 plus percent of Mark that's unique to Mark alone. But Matthew has some unique material, especially about the birth, early years. Luke has some very unique material. Uh, John is almost completely unique to the other three. But these synoptics, sometimes they'll have the same story. Now, it's not the same story. If you read Matthew's story of the temptation, it's different than Mark's. Mark's is very short. You know how long it is? Two verses. Two verses. He was driven in the wilderness by the Spirit, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Bada bing, bada boom. He's done. Luke has the same three temptations listed, but in different order. Now, we have to read each of the Gospels in their context for the reasons why they were put there that way. And so, that's out of the scope of today. Uh, so, Rest assured, we're not going to be here for two hours. But, I do want to look at Matthew's account today. And it is noteworthy to understand that all three of the Gospel writers felt it necessary to mention this part of Jesus' life, which is His temptation by Satan. (laughs) As I just mentioned to the children. seems to be that in every movie, every story, you have the protagonist... And the antagonist, the good guy, and the bad guy. That's what makes for a good story. Uh, If there's only the good, then it seems to be a little boring to us. If there's only the bad, then it seems hopeless to us. When you mix both in, you get fireworks. Which is exactly why we often go to the movies. Here, there's some serious fireworks. (laughs) You have the good guy, the best guy, and the worst guy, the devil. Satan, as he is called, which is accuser. His Hebrew name means the same as the Greek, which is he's the accuser. He accuses. Isn't that what he was doing way back in the garden? 
He said, how did he... Who, who was he accused? God. Remember what he said to Eve? He said, God doesn't want you to be like Him because He'll know that you... Uh, then you'll know like Him, good and evil. What was he doing? He was accusing God of keeping something back from them. He plants a little idea in their head. Say, huh, maybe God... Maybe this fruit really is good. And He's just keeping something from us. You ever had that thought about someone you loved? Someone introduces doubt and it begins to eat away at you? Moving into the action itself? This is what Satan does. He accuses. He's constantly accusing. What happens in Job? What it- God says, hey, what you been up to? Right? devil has a report to God apparently in Job. First chapter. First, second chapter. He says, what you been? well, I've just been roaming around trying to destroy your world. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? He says, well, I can't touch him. But the reason I can't touch him is because you put your hand of protection around him. And the only reason he trusts you, by the way, is because you protect him. What did he do? He accused. He accused Job. So God says, okay, well, take everything away from him. Just don't kill him. So he does. And you know the rest of the story. Here, Satan's doing the same thing. He's up to his old tricks, which seem to be new to each generation, but are really ancient, which is to accuse. Accuse God. Accuse you. He is the liar. So you have the good guy versus the bad guy here. I mean, this is an epic story if you want to think of it in terms of of, of a story here. And first off, you realize that the Spirit actually leads Jesus into the wilderness. Which is almost shocking because you think to yourself, does the Spirit want Jesus to fail? I mean, does that mean that God leads us into temptation? I thought in the Lord's Prayer, we're supposed to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what, what's going on here with the wilderness? Why is the Spirit leading Him into the wilderness? Notice that the Spirit doesn't uh, tempt God. God does not tempt God. Rather, here, he is tempted directly in verse 1 by the devil. It's important to understand. The Spirit here does lead Jesus immediately after this big baptismal scene right into the wilderness to be tested. Now, think with me. Where else is the wilderness in the Bible? Well, you start off in a garden, right? Not in a wilderness. Not in some barren, dangerous wilderness, but rather in a garden. That sounds more pleasant. You know, typically when you think of a garden, you don't think of wild beasts around the corner. You know. Rather, it's something you're controlling, you're managing. In the wilderness, you're not managing the wilderness. The wilderness is managing you. You're trying to survive. So we don't start off in a wilderness. We start off in a garden. But, because of our sin, we end up in the wilderness. Right? We get kicked out. Now we've got to go to work. Now we have to work for our food, rather than just it's being produced naturally. You also get the wilderness in the children of Israel, right? It's an important place for them. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Now, again, you may have noticed, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. 
That's not by coincidence. It's also not by coincidence that immediately after this scene, guess what he does? He picks 12 disciples. <laughs> Just random number? I think I'm going to go with 12. No, 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 no. Read the Old Testament, you'll know why he's picking 12. Those 12 tribes have been lost. At least, the, remember the northern kingdom? All of those tribes were lost forever. Never recovered. Now he picks 12 men to be his disciples. To be the new Israel. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Adam and Eve botched things up, Jesus will become victorious. He will be Redeemer rather than failure. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness and so too the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out of Egypt, remember, through the dreams, through the waters of baptism, just like they went through the waters of the Red Sea, and now into the wilderness of temptation, of testing. Do you really love somebody if you've never been tested? I can sit there and tell you that I can bench press 400 pounds. What are you going to say? Show me. Your pectorials don't look that big, bro. When I try to be tested, I'm only going to be able to pull about 200 and something. Not 400. Is it a reality if you're not tested? In the Bible, the Bible is clear, we will be tested. We will be tempted. But what Jesus shows to us here is that we too can be victorious. We are not called to be defeated. With God's grace, and because He is the new Adam, He is the new Moses, He's bringing about the new Israel, not the Israel that failed in the desert and all of them died, but the one that entered the promised land. That's you. That's me. We have God's grace. We have His Spirit available to us. Not just our own spirit. Not just our own willpower against sin, but God Himself is on our side. And so you get these words, wilderness, 40 days. (laughs) And a time of testing that immediately bring us back to the Old Testament and show us now that God is moving us, yes, out of paradise, into the wilderness, but for the purpose of another paradise, a greater one. We're not headed back to Eden, you realize. We're going to somewhere greater That yes, there's gardens there, but there's also a holy city. We get the best of both worlds. (laughs) So, if you look through the Bible, I just jotted a couple of these down. Some of the major temptations in the Bible. You know, major scenes here. Just think with me real quick. Adam and Eve. It's over fruit. Fruit! It's not a matter... I don't know if I should kill this guy or not. I don't know if I should commit adultery or not. It's over fruit. Now what does that show to us? 
That brought the house down. Fruit! It means that we, as humans, will make anything into God. Anything. Anything. Even good works. What did Jesus just say? From, from, the, from the reading we had in the New Testament? Gospel? What did He say? Hey, you've got to do these things, but guess what? If you do them like the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And they had everything right on the outside. But in here, dead man's bones. The question was, did they trust God? And they didn't. She took the fruit on her own initiative. And apparently Adam, she said, here's what's for supper. He said, yes, ma'am. And so they prove to everyone after them that they don't trust God. They trusted themselves. She, on her own initiative, he, on his own initiative, both sinned directly against what God had told them not to do because a little idea had been placed in their head. Can we really trust God? Can we? Notice also the Israelites, right? When they're leaving Egypt, they get to the promised land. God has delivered them mightily from Egypt with mighty signs. He's provided for them in the desert. Water from rocks. Manna from heaven. And yet, when they get up to the promised land, they say, we're like crickets compared to these people. There's no way we can take them. And we're saying, have you not forgotten what God just brought you through? But don't we forget? We forget. God works mightily in our lives. Three years down the road, it's forgotten. And we're, we're wondering where we can go and who we can turn to until someone reminds us. Turn to God! <laughs> Israel's big thing throughout their life was idols. They would make things into idols. They were tempted by their neighbor's idolatry. If you read the Old Testament, the the primary concern of the kings, the primary concern of the prophets is that they are falling into idolatrous worship. You say, well, man, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that anymore. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Idolatry may have been on the outside in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in our modern time, it's on the inside might not have a small little uh, trinket or stone statue made of wood in your house, but I dare say that if we were to review some of your computers, we could find out what you worship. I don't just mean pornography. I mean where your time is spent. Your phone. Many people, I see, worship their phone. They're bowing down to it all the time. I can't even talk to them. They don't listen to me in class when I'm teaching because they're bowed down in worship. What is worship? What you give yourself to. Where do you give yourself? You worship work? Do you worship yourself? Do you worship pleasure? These are all things that we can worship. What is that the core of this whole thing? Do we trust God? The kings of Israel, they always were tempted with the nation. So whereas the nation of Israel was tempted to be idolatrous, the kings of Israel were always tempted to rely on Egypt or rely on Mesopotamia or the Babylonians for protection rather than God. In other words, God said, I am your protection. I am your strong tower. They say, no, I'm going to trust Egypt on this one. Sorry. 
Again, the question was, do I trust God? In the time of Jesus, it was unbelief, wasn't it? He did these miracles, and yet they still did not believe. God walked among them, and yet He turns to His disciples and says, why are you so slow to believe? Have you been with with me this long, and yet you still don't believe? Unbelief. What is at the heart of unbelief? Do I trust God? What about the early church? They were going through suffering. What was the temptation? Do I trust God with my family? The cartel guy that we've been talking about who converted to the faith probably may die. Again, the question pops up. Do I tr- Do you see this theme? At the core of all our temptations is this one simple question of do I trust God? Do you? Do I? If you look at the first... <laughs> Temptation here, it sounds pretty simple. Satan just simply asked Jesus to turn stones into bread. Notice the subtlety. If you are the Son of God. (laughs) If you are. What is that? A challenge. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. If you are the Son of God, then turn stones to bread. Now, he doesn't use any Scripture in the first temptation. And this temptation just happens in the wilderness. The second temptation is, if you are the Son of God, again, he starts the same way, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now he's, on the, he's in the holy city on the top of the temple. Now if that's the case, everybody's going to be able to see this spectacle. And if everybody sees it, then they'll obviously believe if he's all of a sudden lavitating, right, in midair. I am God. You know, that's what we would do if we were God. We'd do some big show like that. At least I would. That's what I would get people's attention, you know. Watch this, guys. Ah! Ah, there you go. The third temptation is, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. <laughs> and this happens at a very high mountain. So you have three different locations, three different temptations. All of them kind of at the core is an if. If you are the Son of God, if you will do this, if you'll do my bidding. Now, at first, the, the bread thing, we're like, okay, he's hungry, and, and, and this is just a simple thing of Jesus can create his own food. But it's not that simple. You see, when you're God, nothing is simple. <laughs> um, if he's able to turn stones into bread, that eradicates world hunger for all the time. I mean, you know, if all the stones in the world became bagels and scones and biscuits, No more world hunger. It's a greater temptation than just the pleasure of eating at that moment for Jesus. You see, what Satan is offering to him is to eradicate right now, right here, world hunger. Which is what we strive against, right? We're trying to feed the world. and so He could have done it right here. Now, why did he not? What's his response? Mankind does not live by bread alone. Even if you provide food to nations or countries or areas of the world that don't have it, does that ultimately save that nation? (laughs) If you don't know about how food distribution works in Africa, then you need to learn it. Because what happens is these drug lords, these warlords, they take the food and they take it from the UN and they deprive the people of the food. And when you have control of the food, you have control of the people. Have them eaten out of their hand, literally. 
So whereas we're trying to help, we often sometimes exacerbate problems worldwide. It's, it's a noble thing to do sometimes, but good intentions aren't always good outcomes. Jesus could have eradicated it, but He knows something about humans, and that is, even if we have enough food, that doesn't mean we're going to love God or know God. Mankind does not live by food alone, but instead by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He puts the Bible, He puts God in front of food. In other words, food is a secondary thing to our nature. If I don't have food for the next week and I'll ultimately die, what is more important? More food and I still die and without God or God and no food? Jesus goes on the side of saying, God is more important than food. Now, there's a current movie series, The Hunger Games, that's based off a Roman poet who wrote in the Roman times and his little poem said that if you want to control people, food and circuses. That's his way of putting it. Or, hunger and games. Food and entertainment. Let me translate even further. Now, just real quick. Isn't that where we are in our nation? If you give people food, if there's cheap food, you get to eat what you want today, whether it's tacos or hamburgers or whatever you want, and you get to watch your shows that are DVR'd and get glued to your worship box... Aren't we okay? Who cares about the rest of the world? world's falling apart? Ah, who really cares? As long as I'm going to get to watch my show, be quiet. Get my food. It's fascinating. If we were to be studied by people a thousand years from now, they would have to assume that we were obsessed with food. Look at all the places along 72 here. Oh, there's a place. There's another place. There's no. Wow. These people must have been, number one, really big, or, or they were obsessed with food. Or both, right? I mean, we're one of the only nations who have to try to diet. The temptation is clear for Jesus here, and His answer is clear back to the... Now, the devil in his second temptation adds a little Scripture in here. He figures, hey, you know what? I know what will get Jesus is... Add a little scripture in there. I mean, he just told me, right, that it's by the Word of God, right? I mean, the devil's not dumb. He's thinking, hey, God just said by every word, I'm going to give him his word. So, takes him up to the temple, jump off and prove that you're the Son of God. In other words, get God to do a miracle right here and right now and everybody will believe it. Have you ever said that to God? I'm hurting so bad, Lord. This girl broke my heart. Make her love me. Do it now. If you don't, I don't believe in you. Isn't that the atheist claim? On my terms, reveal yourself, God. If you don't do it on my terms, which are materialistic, ha, screw you. That's what we hear. That's what I hear. And I'm trying to say, the Bible says God is a spirit. Therefore, He's not material. Therefore, you'll never find Him in a microscope or a telescope or a Bunsen burner. It's not going to happen. But we demand of God proof. Like He's a circus. Show me your tricks. That's what I paid for, right? Show me your tricks. As if we are in control of Him. And we break the first commandment again, which is no other gods before me. You see, 
each of these temptations, all Satan's doing is moving something that is secondary into first things. First things being God Himself. Nothing trumps God in this world. No idol, no material thing, nothing. The last temptation is also very, very tempting. Because Jesus knows the future, when Satan says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, he means the Third Reich. He means Stalin's government. He means the oppression under communist nations. It's all yours. You can do what you want to with it. You don't have to have six million plus people exterminated if you'll just bow down and worship me. That's, that's quite a temptation. That's quite a temptation. And Jesus, His response is, you shall worship the Lord your God only and serve Him only. Every one of these ways is a shortcut. Sin is a shortcut. What is sexual immorality? It's trying to get the act of sex for yourself without the commitment of marriage. It's trying to receive pleasure from that or even the prestige of that moment without marriage, without covenant. So we're taking something that God has created good and we're isolating it. Now that's in everything, isn't it? It's not just sex, you say. It's pride. The Bible's much more stern on pride than it even is on sexual sins. Pride is what brought Satan down. And it can bring those who hate sin down too. Did you catch that? You can be doing good and living a good Christian life, and yet if you hate people or see yourself as better than people, if you are prideful, if you think you've got it and no one else does, you're in danger of hellfire. More so than the stripper at Jimmy's who understands that she is a sinner. The first temptation deals with materialism. And boy, are we trapped in that. We are products of our cell phones and our television screens and the internet. The second temptation deals with our will, the power to do this and to show this and to take things into our own matter and demand of people certain things and manipulate it to get it. It's exactly what Satan's asking. Manipulate God, Jesus, to prove that you are God. Jesus, I don't have to prove it to you. The last temptation deals with our imagination. Imagine you owning all of the kingdoms of the world is what Satan says to Jesus. And here's what Satan says to us. Imagine that you're with that girl on the screen. Or imagine that you're that guy at work. Or imagine that you are better than all of these people when in fact you are not. You're blind to your own mistakes. Blind to your own failures. And blind without God. But our imagination runs wild, doesn't it? We're, we're sitting like zombies in front of the screen hours upon the day. 
television, pumping stuff into our head through images. Images, you see. Not just words, but images. We, they, they bypass the words. They bypass reason and argument. This is the way things are introduced into our society. It'll come in the sitcoms first. Then we get used to it. It'll come in movies. Then we'll get used to it. Then it comes into society and into law. And by that time, we're already desensitized. Big deal. Imagination. Satan knows where the war and battle is had and it's in the head. Because that's how temptation works. It's in the eyes. Because that's how temptation works. It's in the flesh. Because that's how temptation works. What does 1 John say? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The three things that John mentions are the same three things that Jesus is tempted here with and the same things that we ultimately are tempted with no matter what it is your choice of sin. Now here's the good news. Is yes, we're drawn away by our own desire. James, he tells us that. But Hebrews 12 says, because He was tempted, Jesus, that means, and, and was victorious, that means that we too can be victorious. We are not called to be weak and defeated Christians any longer. We can overcome Satan and the world because Jesus has overcome Satan and the world. It's our own laziness. It's our own indifference that kills us. In, you know, it's not even late. It's indifference. We just don't care about God. We just don't care about the good. The flicker of the TV, the, 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 the games on our cell phones, the, the contacts we have, the positions that we hold, the riches that we've obtained, that's just more fun than what is good, which is God. You see, all these ways are shortcuts because they don't include the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to suffer. Every one of these ways bypassed that. In our life, Jesus says, if you choose to follow Me, you too must take up your cross. Now Satan will offer you a million shortcuts. They'll be so subtle you don't even realize you're taking one. That's the story of my life. I was doing everything right and then I got to a place where I said, God, You ought to be giving me these good things because I'm doing what You said. Why are You not giving me what I want? <laughs> That's not what the lover says on Valentine's. I do this so I can get this outcome. Rather, I do this as a servant to you because I love you. That's what Jesus comes to do. He's not taking a shortcut. His outcome is for you. He wants to be with us. It's the craziest thing in the world. We've all failed God. We've all given into temptation. And yet, He still loves us and welcomes us back today with open arms. And He offers us help. It's not just, oh, you cheated on your wife. 
And then go do it again because she forgave you. God says, we are in a marriage. You don't need to continue to run after other lovers. I am enough. I am enough. Do you trust God? It's a simple, simple, simple question at the heart of our faith. Do you really trust Him? Maybe you've tricked yourself into it. Maybe Satan has pulled the blindfold over your eyes. You're doing all the things right. You're trying to live a good life, but you've missed Jesus Christ. If he can get you living a good life, doing good things, and you miss Jesus, then bam, you'll meet him one day in hell. That's all he wants. He doesn't care if you're doing good things for God as long as you're missing God. Jesus saves. Not your works. Not your gifts. Not your power. Your position. Jesus. Do you trust Him? And are you willing today to let Him help you overcome temptation? He knows what it means to be tempted. More than we do. And He can identify with us and send His Spirit to give us power. Do you believe that today? Or have you listened to the lie of the liar? He's lied to all of us. He's whispered all kinds of things in our ears. We need to hear from God's Spirit. You need to go to God now in prayer. I need to go to God now in prayer. This is a message that has troubled me greatly over the past day or two, and I've done much repenting. So if you'll join me in your repentance and in your prayers, we listen to God's Spirit And we say, be gone, devil. And as the angels minister to us in the next few moments, let's lift our hearts to God in true faith and acceptance of Him. Amen.